hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This episode is supported by Visual Arts Passage. Building a career in the arts can be overwhelming. There's a reason why all of your artist friends are pretty freaked out all of the time. That's where Visual Arts Passage comes in, giving students direct access to professional artists to bridge that gap between amateur and professional. Visual Arts Passage isn't art school. It's your art career strapped to a rocket. Working artists become the industry compass through mentorships, custom-tailored coaching, and providing access to world-renowned guest artists. And Visual Arts Passage graduates are taking the industry by storm, hired by major publications including The New York Times, Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, and more. To learn more, why not join their free online drawing event every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific time? All skill levels are welcome. You can register for free at visualartspassage.com slash palette. Again, that's visualartspassage.com slash palette. And now, a message from Bob Ross. Okay. Now then, today, shoot, let's get crazy. Let's get crazy. We're going to check out your nerves today, see if you're brave. So it sounds like Bob is saying that it's the Lonely Palette's year-end Patreon fundraiser. And if we hit our goal, you can expect an episode on Bob Ross himself early next year. Bob Ross. Bob Ross. Go to patreon.com slash lonelypalette or anywhere on the Lonely Palette website for more information www.thelonelypalette.com. Check out your nerves. Be brave. Support The Lonely Palette. Don't be afraid of it. Do it. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. And if yours doesn't come out looking exactly like this, that means it's better. It's better. Uh, so it's a painting of a very elderly man. Right in the center of the, the painting, you, you see his torso with the ribs very prominent, uh, being tied, not nailed, to a cross um, by another man who seems to be on a ladder and is in the process of tying the knots around one of his hands. And the feet are, of course, pure Caravaggio feet, like, Dirty, Dirty nails, broken know, nails, yeah. yeah. Those the sort of really ropey muscles of like almost kind of attenuated muscles. It's like body worlds, sort of the anatomicalness of it. We're not just sort of being like, oh, look, there's some muscles, but it's like, here's these bodies kind of in action. It's quite dark, but there's a large shaft of light coming right at the torso of the crucified man can see sort of how red his neck is, the sort of elderly, red, wrinkled neck and his beard. It looks very exhausted. Something that jumps out at me is the fact that the background is very sketchy and um, the colors are muted. So even the red I find muted. And grouped around the bottom of, of the cross are four or five other people 
some of whom appear to be soldiers. One is wearing armor. Um, and on the other side, a, an elderly woman, quite poorly dressed. No one's very clean. Everybody's quite wrinkled. No one's very pretty. Um, the woman to the left, her eye, like there's this, the white in her eye, the glint in her eye, I think is mm. utter sorrow, I think, or pity or pain. And it's like she's, you know, her wizened um, face. It's like, is she's almost like she's a stand-in for like a lot of people or a lot of pain, like that's sort of gathering in her. I mean, we know it's Andrew who's on the cross. Um, his body is bent to the right and the person who's either tying him up or trying to pull him, get him to come down, I think because he looks like he's already dead, so maybe he's trying to take him down. He's bent to the left, so there is there's no position there. But there's also a connection because the loincloths or whatever we want to call them, there's one line basically. And I don't know, it could be like life on the left and death on the right. And there is an intimacy to this painting that I find almost unbearing. Mm -hmm. um, it's so intimate. And um, I mean, we're at the same level as, you know, the people at the bottom, right? And um, it makes us, I think, both voyeurs and viewers, and that's kind of uncomfortable. It's not theatrical in the sort of like insulting sense of phony, of feeling, mm -hmm. feeling emotionally false. Like I think there's that visceral kind of quality as well. Yeah. Theater is always aimed for. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 60, Caravaggio's The Crucifixion of St. Andrew, from 1607. We've all had that experience of sitting in a theater as the lights go down. You've just been leafing through a program, chatting with a friend, scrolling through your phone. The set sits inert on the stage, barely illuminated by the house lights. And then the lights dim and the chatter falls away like the sound has been absorbed into the upholstered seats. Real life gets put away, silenced, into our purses and our pockets. The air becomes taut with anticipation. And then the stage lights come up. The set comes alive, perfectly and brilliantly lit, with its entire quality just changed. Because there's something about artificial light that makes everything seem extra real. People come on stage caked in makeup, but under these lights they appear normal. It's a weird phenomenon, this artificial reality that feels realer than real. And plays have always been a little weird if you think about them. 
You're watching real people navigate real furniture, reciting their lines in real time, tapping into very real emotions with all of their very real consequences. I actually watched the very real spittle fly out of Andrew Garfield's mouth and hit Philip Seymour Hoffman's face in the climactic confrontation between Biff and Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman on Broadway, which I now realize I had the unique privilege of seeing. But at that moment, on stage, you knew how deeply these actors were feeling it to make that scene so powerful. And yet, it was not real. They were actors. It's a fiction, a story. And though it's for us, us viewers, we also kind of feel like voyeurs. We're witnessing something as we're entertained by it. We could cross the invisible fourth wall into this drama and sit on that couch. I mean, obviously we shouldn't, but we could. We could get sprayed with that spittle if we're sitting in the front row. And we accept it, but it's kind of weird, right? And so unique to the theater. Of course, here at The Lonely Palette, we're in the business of paintings, not theater. And no matter how realistic a painting is, you'd be hard-pressed to confuse a painting of something with the thing itself. I mean, even when the Renaissance aesthetic ideal of a painting that was so real that it could be a window onto the world went and changed our technical understanding of what art was capable of, nobody looked at a Renaissance painting at its uniform all-over light sources and grid-like perspective and static figures, and smacked right into that window like a bird. No one ever actually mistook it as real. But as the Renaissance evolved into the Baroque period, this window became less like a stage set under house lights. Those overhead lights started to flicker, and the chatter quieted, and the stage lights came up. The artificial yet realer-than-real reality set in. A painting could feel emotionally real, uncomfortably real. You, of course, couldn't walk into this enormous Caravaggio painting of St. Andrew's crucifixion. But look at the gleam off the armor of the elbow that bends towards you. Look at the taut muscles and firm grip of a hand tightening knots. Look at the old man's reddened, weathered neck. Look at the guard assessing the integrity of the crucifix with bureaucratic nonchalance. Okay, sure, you couldn't walk right into this painting, but you really feel like you could. And it's this feeling of a theater that's practically on your lap this realer-than-realism that makes everybody feel like they know Caravaggio so intimately, so intensely, so grossly. When I told my sister I was writing this episode, she said, oh, I love Caravaggio, I think. He's just one of those painters who makes you go, ugh, while you swoon. Because while he was, famously, a brilliant painter of high-contrast chiaroscuro and intense facial expressions and fruit, he was also infamously a bad boy who delighted and maybe was even compelled by painting some really uncomfortable things. 
seriously, he was a punk ass. I mean, we actually know more about him from his trial documents and court testimony than from the writings of his students or contemporary art historians or the workshops that he led. Because he probably didn't have many students, and he certainly didn't lead any workshops like the other old masters of his generation. But he also didn't do a lot of things the way that the old masters did. For one thing, he didn't get old. He only actually produced art for about 18 years before dying of a fever on the run for murder at the age of 39. But those are 18 extraordinary, prolific, punk-ass years. And today, we're gonna dive into them deep. Caravaggio was born Michelangelo Merisi da Caravaggio in 1571 in Milan and moved to the town of Caravaggio, about 35 kilometers outside of Milan, to escape the plague that would ultimately kill both his father and his grandfather on the same day in 1577. And I mention this detail not just to explain his name, which, like Leonardo da Vinci, is basically just the town he's from, but to set the larger tone for Caravaggio's incredibly traumatic upbringing, and how steeped it was in instability and sickness and death right out of the gate. You know he has experienced the suffering that he went on to paint again and again. His mother, destitute and raising five children, died in 1584 when Caravaggio was only 13, which was also the same year that he started a four-year apprenticeship with Simone Peterzano, who referred to himself as a student of Titian, but is now known more than anything for teaching Caravaggio. But in the moment itself, Petrizzano was a mannerist painter, and we talked about mannerism in episode 33, which meant that he was interested in jarring, funky perspectives and close attention to surface detail and the deep emotionalism of his figures. These were all characteristics, as you can imagine, that would have been incredibly formative for a young Caravaggio. Not much is known about the rest of Caravaggio's teenage years until he arrives in Rome at the age of 20, broke, desperate, and almost always spoiling for a fight. In artistic terms, he was kind of the equivalent of the 17th century artistic solo law practitioner, or, say, an independent podcaster. Artists in Rome at this time either worked in workshops or had wealthy patrons. But Caravaggio was painting for anyone and everyone on the open market, hoping to court those wealthy patrons that would hire him to fill the smaller palazzos and huge churches that were popping up in Rome like weeds. And in these early days in his career, his paycheck depended on his incomparable ability when it came to two artistic practices, painting flowers and fruit, and painting heads for larger paintings that weren't actually attributed to him. In terms of the fruit, remember that when we looked at Rembrandt in episode 39, we talked about genre paintings and how painting still lives of fruit was basically the bottom of the artistic food chain. But not in Caravaggio's hands. His still lives were painted with exquisite, precise, juicy detail, like the bulbous, lusty grapes in his painting Young Sick Bacchus from this period in 1593, or in Boy Bitten by a Lizard from around 1596, 
where the flowers sitting in a cold, wet, sweating vase sits behind cherries that you could practically pluck from the frame. His ability with still life was absolutely peerless. But for all of this virtuosic rendering, these fruits were actually blasted by art historians of his time, who were clearly annoyed that he was wasting his talent on fruit that would have been rotting or out of season. And this criticism, even though it sounds trivial, actually really put its finger on something. Because the establishment was always dinging Caravaggio for the quality of his subjects, from the dirty-looking fruit to the dirty-looking people that he painted. There was, of course, a reason for why he painted what he did. He was really poor. He was always only painting what he had access to, from crappy berries to friends who were well acquainted with the streets. But seriously, look what he did with them. And how extraordinary was his ability to look in the first place, to look around him and so deeply into these subjects, these crappy berries and grimy, dirty-footed vagrant friends, to capture them with the same sensitivity, the same sensuous, caught-in-the-moment quality, and the kind of extraordinary attention to detail in both the botanically correct vein of a leaf and a dirty toenail. And in doing so, elevating these grim subjects and genres to the highest level of history painting. And of course, let's talk about his ability to paint heads and faces. Like I said, this was the Baroque period. And the Baroque was no stranger to emotional expressiveness. We've talked about this at length in both episodes 8 and 33, so I'm not going to rehash them here. Other than to say that this was a time that embraced capturing the climax of a moment, both emotionally and narratively. Just think about Michelangelo's David, the pinnacle of Renaissance sculpture, who stands just chilling, either before or after shooting the slingshot. Now think about Bernini's David a century later, his muscles taut in the act of shooting it. This is what we're talking about, the height of this action. So it's not like Caravaggio is doing anything particularly novel when he paints his figures open-mouthed with surprise or fear or pain at the tippy-top height of their emotional moment. He just does it so f***ing well. Caravaggio's facial features are so psychologically present that we begin to understand why the 20th century art historian André Byrne Joffroy wrote that, quote, what begins in the work of Caravaggio is, quite simply, modern painting. We've said again and again that modernism is this capturing of life lived in real time, the sense of snapshot, the feeling like subjects aren't posed but are instead eternally moving and twisting and reacting and living their lives, and that the painting is just capturing the second that they looked like this, in this caught moment, where we can walk right in and witness it. And while plenty of painters attempted and even achieved this Baroque sense of psychological immediacy, Caravaggio was just in a class of his own. Take his painting Medusa from 1597, which is meant to render the mythical Gorgon at the exact moment of her decapitation by Perseus. Again, the climax of the scene. 
And just look at this face, the gaping, off-kilter mouth, the knit brow, the bulging eyes, the dynamism, the sheer gruesomeness. You feel like she's screaming and you can hear it. This is a decapitated head, meant, some say, to actually be a self-portrait of Caravaggio. That still feels sentient, conscious, and compelling, even at its moment of death. It's insane. And speaking of insane, let's also talk about his technique. Infrared imaging has been done on his paintings to see beneath the paint and has discovered that there are almost no preparatory drawings. And when there are, they're barely changed from sketch to painting. I mean, dude painted like this directly onto the canvas. And the themes that he repeatedly explored were informed by his technical choices. He favored strong, direct, indoor light sources, never natural light, to create these amazingly high contrast, almost artificial seeming tableaus of very real people. Like I said, he didn't use proper models, but friends that were willing to pose for him. And so he captured them with astonishing realism, their unwashed hair, their dirty fingernails and all. But what's also extraordinary about his use of light is how, as the National Gallery curator Letizia Treves says, light is not just an aesthetic enhancement of his paintings, but actually underpins their meanings. And she gives an example of this in his painting The Supper at Emmaus from 1601, which was a watershed year in Caravaggio's professional life, and we'll come back to that. But it is in this specific painting that we see how Caravaggio uses light to pack a real narrative punch. The painting is, again, the culminating moment of the action. The newly risen Christ is in an inn off the road to Emmaus, and right at the moment that he's blessing the bread, his disciples realize who he is. And it's the light that represents that moment of recognition, with the oblivious innkeeper appropriately in the dark. Caravaggio was at the height of his professional career when he painted this, taking this familiar subject in such a novel way, with what Treves describes as an extraordinary, quote-unquote, freshness of vision. And with such technical prowess and vivid immediacy, the leap of the figure out of the chair, the brilliantly foreshortened limbs and fingers, the utterly exquisite still life of the jug and the fruit on the table— and here, again, it's the light that binds the scene together like magnificent glue, too intense to be real, yet reinforcing the kind of realer-than-real theatricality of a stage, down to the shadows on the back wall that looks like a backdrop. The compositional cropping of the painting makes us feel like we could be in the room. We could be tempted to push back that fruit that's sitting so precariously on the table. But we won't, because we're so enthralled with the scene that we're watching on stage as we sit in our darkened theater. Okay, so picking up Caravaggio where we left him. He's still in Rome, scraping by on fruit and faces, when, finally, in 1599, he scores the commission that thrusts him into the public eye and makes him the sensation that he always knew he'd be. Rome at the time was a must-visit training ground for artists and art students all around Europe. 
So even though Caravaggio barely left Rome, his reputation was spreading far outside the confines of the city when these artists went home. Meanwhile, inside the city, he was gaining commissions left and right, a hugely sought-after genius who, of course, had matured enough out of his hot-headed, punk-ass ways to not let this newfound fame go to his head. Oh no, wait, JK, he was an absolute schmuck. From 1602 to 1606, and again, we know this from the police records, he was arrested at least 11 times, known for painting for two weeks and then spending the next month swaggering from one tennis court to the next, sword in hand, challenging anyone he met to a fight. To give you a sense of him, if you couldn't already tell, this is a man who refused an offer of holy water to wash away his venial sins with the reply that all of his sins were mortal. He was sued by his landlady, he was the subject of a vicious libel suit, he punched cops, and of course, no retelling of Caravaggio's life would be complete without mentioning the infamous capital A, capital I artichoke incident. When he was at a restaurant and presented with eight artichokes, half cooked in oil and half cooked in butter, and when he asked the waiter which was which, and the waiter replied that he should smell them, Caravaggio did what all normal restaurant patrons would do in response to that kind of cheek, and threw them right in the waiter's face. And to be fair, most of these crimes up to this point could be categorized as venial. It wasn't until 1606 when he finally killed someone after losing a bet on a game of tennis, and one of the players ended up on the business end of his sword. And so, six years into his meteoric fame, he fled Rome as a fugitive. And sure, stories of hot, buttery, oily artichokes flung in someone's face are always fun, obviously. But what's really interesting about all of this unhinged aggression is the effect that it had on his art, both inside and outside the frame, and both during this time in Rome and when he was on the run. Even at the height of his career and his commissions, his work had a kind of claustrophobic intensity and a potent undercurrent of violence. Beheadings, sacrifices, calling for blood, gruesome biblical scenes, always, of course, at the brilliantly lit climax of the action. I've always been particularly struck by the taking of Christ from 1602, the moment of Judas's betrayal of Christ. Not only is this a peak moment of emotional betrayal, but everything about this painting feels frenzied. The reaching hands, the gasping mouths, and yet also so frozen in this caught moment, with limbs cut off at the sides, as much of a modernist snapshot as Degas' Aunt Fanny from episode four. It's technically extraordinary, the light is ostensibly coming from the moon, and of course the sheen off of the armor of the arresting officer is nothing short of sublime. But more than anything, you can feel the immediacy of this betrayal. The bodies gripping one another, pushed against each other, uncomfortably close. The weight of body against body. The snugness of the frame around them. You see an artist who knows a thing or two about bodies in throng. He knows the kind of mob energy where someone could end up run through with a sword. And then, of course, he's on the run. 
and his paintings after 1606 reflect this too. Which brings us to our painting of the day, The Crucifixion of St. Andrew from 1607. For all of Caravaggio's trademark tight realism that we've come to expect from him, there's a looser feel here, in the fabrics, in St. Andrew's torso, in the background, in the musculature, in the ropey veins and wrinkles of the woman's upturned face, even in this sheen off of the armor of this official. During this period, quite understandably, he no longer had a studio. He was no longer using live models. And so much of his work is painting types, those heads and facial expressions that he cut his teeth on in his early days in Rome. His work during this time is pared down to their essentials, a sense of broad gesture, larger facial expressions, more rhetorical, less subtle, less attention paid to surface detail, so no perfectly rendered baskets of fruit to reach out and touch. And while there is, of course, no sense that these paintings are in any way dashed off, or, to be sure, are any less emotional, their complexity, as Letizia Treves says, is under the surface. And then, only three years after this was painted, Caravaggio died, in exile, alone. By 1610, he had skirted in and out of Naples for four whole years, waiting for the Pope to pardon him for the murder. And when he did, Caravaggio boarded a boat back to Rome with his paintings, but then was arrested under false pretenses and was released after both the boat and the paintings were gone. He then attempted to reach Rome on foot, caught a fever, and just died. This brilliant painter who never had a chance to become an old master. And he never trained the legions of students in his style to carry on his legacy. But artists did anyway. The impact on the art world from these 18 prolific punk-ass years is incalculable. And his death sent seismic ripples through the art world. Artists and patrons scrambled to buy his paintings and order commissions from his followers. It even had a name, Caravaggism, and its followers, the Caravaggisti, as all those artists I mentioned who had flocked to Rome and then home again, brought his techniques with them from his meticulous rendering of the natural world, to his use of live models, to his brilliant singular light source. I mean, think, for example, that Caravaggio himself never used a single candle in his work, and that contemporary French painter Georges de la Tour never went to Italy or saw a single Caravaggio painting in person. And yet, Caravaggio is always credited with influencing Delator's dark background and flickering illumination. But then, as always happens, the pendulum swings back. Caravaggism fell out of favor in the middle of the 17th century, and then the critics came in waving their pitchforks. 18th century neoclassical painters seriously couldn't clutch their pearls fast enough, decrying that Caravaggio set out to destroy art with his base realism. 19th century art historians were also positively disgusted with him. 
Take noted Pris John Ruskin, for example, describing Caravaggio's work as dull and vulgar, that he overlooked beauty in favor of, quote, horror and ugliness and the filthiness of sin. I mean, go off, John Ruskin, but if this is torture, chain me to the wall. Fortunately, early 20th century art historians got their heads back on straight and began talking about Caravaggio in the terms he deserved, noting that so many beloved 17th century artists from Vermeer to Rembrandt flat out wouldn't have existed without Caravaggio's influence, and that the trajectory of neoclassicism and mid-19th century realism would have been irrevocably altered, much as it would have pained them to admit it. This welcome rediscovery culminated in a landmark exhibition in Milan in 1951 and brought Caravaggio the renewed squeamish swoony attention that he currently enjoys, as well as his continued influence not only on contemporary art and contemporary audiences, but on contemporary cinematography. Quote, Caravaggio pervaded the entirety of the bar sequences in Mean Streets, Martin Scorsese said in an interview. And you see it, the climactic moments, the dingy group scenes, people pulled from the street, leaping from their chairs, and more than anything, the use of powerful, determined, single-source light that creates that artificial, realer-than-realness, ideal for a cinematic moment. Quote, Caravaggio, Scorsese concludes, would have made a great filmmaker. There's no doubt about it. I have no doubt about it. But the thing is, we go to plays, and maybe art museums for that matter, for something that we don't get in films. And it feels like this is something that Caravaggio knew, even with his purported cinematic genius. Because we want realer than real. We want to feel like we could get spittle or a piping hot plate of artichokes thrown in our faces. We want to feel the emotion behind them both. We want air that is taut with anticipation, grapes we feel like we can eat, biblical stories painted with humane, almost uncomfortable empathy. Gods and gorgons, angels and hothead punks that could be us, that actually are us, eternally moving and twisting and reacting and living our lives. Dirty fingernails and all. Special thanks to Roberta Barker, Patreon patron extraordinaire, for suggesting this episode, and her friend Maria Euchner for their beautiful descriptions at the top. Thanks also, as ever, to Debbie Bleacher for her production help. For more information, past episodes, and all the high-contrast, dirty-footed images, head to thelonelypalette.com, and you can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Lonely Palette, or on Instagram at The Lonely Palette, 
And believe it or not, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts is still a great way for newbies to discover the show. So pop on over and smash those five stars if you're so inclined. It is hugely appreciated. In other news, our year-end Patreon fundraiser is in full swing. We're looking for a fresh batch of new patrons by the end of December. And if we hit our goal, you can expect a shiny new episode on Bob Ross in early 2023. This is the same fundraiser that brought you episodes on dogs playing poker and the Eche Homelo restoration delight. So you know this is going to be good. We've got some excellent giveaways, including an oil painting by Debbie Mueller and a customized child's portrait by my mom, Susan Avishai. And you can see their work and learn anything else you need to know about our fundraiser, including how to give, at thelonelypalette.com slash 2022-fundraiser. Or just go to the site and click the banner at the top. And if you're still on the fence, one more fun piece of news is that we've added a Patreon perk. If you support the show at $10 per episode or above, you can join me on Zoom for a spotlight talk and a discussion about a work of art every month. We'll laugh, we'll cry, we'll rag on Renoir. Join us, it'll be great. Check it out at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective. And if you're a fan of soulful and quirky stories about nighttime, then I'll bet dollars to donuts that the most recent episode of Vanessa Lowe's Nocturne, Hot Out the Grease, is right up your dark alley. Listen at nocturnepodcast.org, hubandspokeaudio.org, or wherever you get your podcasts.